if we're all gathering and we're all trying to seek Jesus together, why wouldn't we consider models that could potentially make more of us biblically literate, more of us shaped by the scripture, more of us shaped by community? The current models, I would argue, are not doing that very effectively, which is one reason why people are finding that they don't need to come back after COVID. It's not that helpful to them. What if we not only found a way to invite more voices into the conversation, but to create more spiritual depth among people? This is Jane Wilcox, and you are listening to Shaklesiology. Girls talk in church. Tell your girls a story, I won't tell you a lie. Anything you want, you can do it just fine. Come on. Come on and rock the world. If they tell you you can't do it, you just turn it up and play like a girl. In this episode, the She Team picks up where we left off in part one of how training for ministry needs to change to be more effective for the next generation. In the second episode, Jen helps us think through innovative forms of ministry training that draw on human behavior and learning theory. Our hope is to encourage ideas to more effectively prepare ministry leaders for the challenges of a post-COVID church. And just a real quick update, our website www.girlstalkingchurch.com has been fully redesigned. You can find out more about Chris Ann, Kim, Jen, and myself there. You can listen to the latest episode, leave us feedback, which we would love to hear from you. And in the near future, you'll be able to read articles at girlstalkingchurch.com that have been submitted by rising women theologians from our Shaklesiology community. By the way, If you are interested in submitting an article to share with our listening community, go to our website at girlstalkingchurch.com and post a message to me. Can't wait to hear from you. Okay, let's get to this new episode. Enjoy and thanks for listening. We appreciate you. I think what I'm interested in talking about and would love to hear your thoughts and some of our listeners' thoughts is, is there merit in doing that hard work and that heavy lifting? Is the, is the potential benefit of this worth the cost that would be involved to move toward it? And I would argue that there are benefits um, beyond just, well, now we don't have to pay a full-time pastor. Although reflecting on our conversation so far, obviously that's a reality for many churches and that's something that needs to be grappled with. But I don't see this as a fallback because we can't pay a guy. I see this as an opportunity to really do something that's potentially even more kingdom impactful and more, dare I say, biblical. Um, as I look at the early church, Chrisanne, tell me what you think about that. Um, so actually backing up just a little bit, you said that, that this change would take time, but as I think about what the pandemic, what effect the pandemic had on churches, we had to let a lot of programs go. I mean, I, and, and maybe this was just my experience in my local congregation, but I feel like the, the shutdown, the, well, the need to transition to the online experience for a while when we couldn't meet in person, it actually created space to try yeah. something new and to scale down. I mean, what we did, and I, this might be unique because I also heard of exhausted staff because of, of the, the need to transition to online that people were doing a lot more work, but our congregation actually scaled down and simplified things to go online. And even as we reopened for in-person worship, our worship services are very simple. We sing two songs. 
we pray a congregational prayer together. We read scripture, we hear some teaching, we sing two more songs and we're done. And it, and even like our worship team is scaled down. So there's actually space. I feel like as COVID sped up some of these societal changes, I think there's an opportunity for, for churches to sort of scale down and create space to do more of the work of collaborative dreaming, collaborative leadership Mm. experiments, like limited to like, Hey, let's try this for three months and just see what happens and let this person lead it. Um, and then in three months you, you reevaluate, like, I I think sometimes churches, we create new programs and then we think they're in cement and we can't ever stop them (laughs) or do something new. So I think there's such an opportunity here. Mm. When I stepped away from Highland park, the, the pastoring at Highland park, uh, those that gathered on Sunday moved to what we typically say is a small group format. Um, I still call it church. And when I rejoined them uh, about a year later, um, they had begun developing a way to, to, to preach without a preacher. That's the best way I can say. But this is what this looks like and what had developed over a process of probably two or three years. Uh, and it's still what we do today. Uh, and we're, by the way, we're gathered in what's called the back porch area. It's like a cafe area. So there's a whole sanctuary, but it's just, you know, it's for like recitals and stuff. So we gather in this backspace area after we eat for a while and we talk for like a half hour and then we do prayer because you have to talk through what we're praying about. Uh, and then we finally study scripture. And I'm, I'm going to resist using the phrase Bible study. But imagine this, imagine that there is a leader, but they're a facilitator that day. Could be an adult, could be a teenager. Usually we don't go lower than someone that's a teen. Um, And they have a guide sheet, facilitator sheet of questions. And now imagine the process that you use to preach, to prepare for a sermon, where you read through it multiple times. I spent $35,000 for the seminary to tell me that you need to keep reading scripture over and over and over and over again. It was worth every dollar, by the way. So you read through it and then you make observations and then you make connections with what came before it, and what came after it. And you look for those, uh, those key ideas that, that sort of surface and you keep drilling down until you come to this, you know, big nugget of, of principle or truth. And then you begin making application. But you make it up, but now you're making application across many people's lives and perspectives. If, if I can say this, and it, I just made the connection now, this was Orpheus for us and still is. Because while, you know, people tend to look to me as the theologically trained person, um, I would refuse to give the sermon. First of all, I wasn't prepared to give the sermon because I don't come prepared but I make sure that we linger and, and stay in this phase of observation and connection mm-hmm. and, and wandering and inquiry uh, for as long as possible before we kind of settle on. And I always ask the question uh, or whoever's leading, um, what is the most important thing in this passage that you see? Typically, we'll do an entire chapter, by the way, at a time. What's the most important thing that, that is in this passage for us today? And let them tell the entire community, what is, what is the truth here? 
and you know, there could be several truths that day uh, that really is connecting with people and making sense to them uh, having studied this together. And then we make application. What does the word have for us today in terms of our uh, being Christians in today's world, uh, being the church and for us personally? And again, it's just this mosaic. And, you know, they're typically people that like they'll nail it. You know, where there's this one person you have to ask her, Seely, what's what's the application today? And she nails it with this very personal, sometimes confessional um, application piece. Um, the benefit of that, having now done it for 10 years or however long it's been, I would take to task, barring any theologically trained groups, I would take to task any church on these people understanding of scripture, their capacity, and they can, you know, they've left for college. Most of these teens have left for college. Any of them could do the same exact thing because we continue to do it over and over and over again. Oh. They have put the work into every Sunday, going into those scriptures, uh, not making assumptions, digging in, looking for those observations and pulling out the truth in that. Um, so, yeah, I think they're changing the, or at least propose, because I'm, I'm not the pastor, uh, propose a change in the, in the uh, church's name to Orpheus Community Church. I am on that right now. I am on it. It's interesting. it's interesting, Jane, because I actually thought of Highland immediately when we started talking about this topic um, and the connections to some of these, you know, approaches by mm. Orpheus and others. So it's interesting that either that didn't, immediately jump out to you maybe because you're so embedded in it as your faith yeah. community. Yeah. Um, but I think you guys have been living that in, in one way. Um, mm. And I also love what you said. I think that one of the things that's important in this conversation, as I said a minute ago, it's not just about finding a way to do a plan B because we don't have enough pastors anymore. That's not really the spirit of this, of this uh, conversation. But I think also it's important to consider, to begin with the end in mind, as Stephen Covey always says, and to think about, mm -hmm. okay, not only do we have more pastors leaving the ministry and we have more people considering quitting and the church is shutting down, but we also have people who are less discipled and less spiritually formed than they should be, I think, or as that we would want them to be. We talked about that in some of our previous episodes. So this is also an opportunity to rethink, okay, what are the results that we want? And I hate to put it in that language, but what are the, if we're all gathering and we're all trying to seek Jesus together, why wouldn't we consider models that could potentially make more of us biblically literate, more of us shaped by the scripture, more of us shaped by community? The current models, I would argue, are not doing that very effectively, which is one reason why people are finding that they don't need to come back after COVID. It's not that helpful to them. Mm -hmm. What if we not only found a way to invite more voices into the conversation, but to create more spiritual depth among people? Mm -hmm. um, that that's what I that's where my heart is when I talk about this as being an opportunity and not just an adjustment to the realities. I think this is an opportunity to find some things that have been lost in in the rhythm of 20 to 45 minute sermon every week and then we, and then we scatter. The other thing, the other question I would ask to for us and to our listeners is how does this, what does this look like beyond the worship service? We've talked a lot about the gathering time, but this can also have a lot of ramifications for how we minister to each other throughout the week. Who's leading um, congregational care? 
who is thinking through the way that we engage with our communities. There's lots of things that our churches do beyond the weekly gathering, although we invest a lot of our time and resources in that, which is maybe another podcast. Uh, but there are other things we do as part of our community life. And I think, um, I think this has ramifications for that as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kim, I'm putting you on the spot. What do you think about this? You've been sitting there soaking it all in. Tell me what you think. I can see the and I think Kim's ministry context leads well to that. So I'm, I'm actually dying to hear Kim's perspective too. It's so interesting because Jen said that we're not trying to introduce chaos, um, but listeners <laughs> can't see that I'm like cheering silently and like pumping my fist because there's a part of me that really wants to just like, um, please with a grain of salt, like let's like set fire, start over new, like, let's, let's just try it and see what happens. I think that's how I'm a little bit wired. And I think I got a little taste of that. Um, a couple of years ago, I was part of a church plant in Singapore. And I really loved that opportunity that like, Hey, we needed this. All right, Kim, like you're up on Sunday, go for it. I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. Or it's just like, Hey, we need like the floor clean. So it means that I'm on my hands and knees, you know, 30 minutes before, because there's a Sunday school and they're eating Cheerios you know, right before. And that was, and that was great. And I think that's like kind of like what I loved about just kind of going for it. This is a bit of a tangent. Um, I think as people are sharing about this idea and bringing in these ideas about discipleship and like biblical literacy, I'm like, oh, this is stuff that I jive with. This is stuff that I want. And this is stuff that I love. And I think there's this is very unlike me. Normally I'm just like, yes, let's go. Let's keep, let's make the whole episode about this. There's a small part of me though, and this is very unusual, um, that I wonder actually a little bit about communities and churches that have a little bit of a, I don't know if this is the right way to phrase it, but like, like highly liturgical in nature, because I don't come from that tradition necessarily. Maybe I do. I grew up Baptist without understanding what that really meant. I just knew that like, we didn't sing very loudly uh, and no one clapped and like, that was fine. But that's how I grew up. And so I'm actually kind of more curious about people who come from backgrounds with a high sense of liturgy, because to me, this sounds great. Um, I think because theologically I'm shaped, I'm like, whatever brings the kingdom sooner and faster, fantastic. Let's just do that. Um, not saying that high liturgy can't get us there. I'm just kind of like, let's just try it and see what happens. But I think for people who have a high sense of liturgy, I wonder if there is a, we're not trying to induce anxiety, but I wonder if maybe their palms are sweating a little bit of the idea of decentralizing I don't know if we can use that word, decentralizing like the power or the gathering and, and spreading that out a little bit. So I'm curious um, more so what people think about that. Well, I do think that's a really important point because we're all bringing our church experiences, which I think are pretty much more, maybe not non-denominational, but definitely more on the um, less formal, every church has a liturgy, but less formal liturgy. Um, yeah, like church. Right. Um, But it is interesting that you bring that up because my husband and I, the church where we've settled in Knoxville is actually, it's a midweek gathering. It's a Wednesday night gathering called Word and Table. And it is a liturgical uh, approach. Um, And so we have uh, the whole thing. We have the 
the, the opening prayers and we have the Old Testament reading and the New Testament and the gospel reading and the homily and the, um, the time of confession and the passing of peace and the Eucharist and the whole deal. What's interesting is that um, there is very much a value for a decentered um, approach to it. So right now, because it's a newer service of this church, which has other services on the weekends, um, there are two people who alternate the um, uh, kind of do leading things, um, being, you know, reading the parts in bold, so to speak, uh, doing the Eucharist, you know, kind of um, performing that role. But um, when we get there, they say that we gather outside the meeting room and they're like, okay, who's going to carry in the cross? Okay, who wants to do the Old Testament reading? Here it is. Here's here. We printed it out. Um, who's doing New Testament reading? Okay, here it is. Um, and actually the liturgical structure aids that because you have your program and you know when you're up. Yeah. You know when it's time for the Old Testament reading, it's your time to stand and share with the group. And then it's your time to sit down. And it's very, you know, you know what the parameters are, right? Um, and then because um, it's also a value for this group, they've opened up the preaching. So there's the two mm. guys who um, who kind of lead and who do the Eucharist every week do have done the majority of the preaching so far, but I'm preaching in April. Um, there's a community of people who are kind of going to, they just signed up on an Excel sheet to take a turn at the homily. Um, Matt, my husband is going to do the music every second week of the month to, to give the regular musician a break. So there's very much a value that was created from the beginning of, again, not chaos. It's not that like, we're going to put it up for a vote every week, whether or not we're going to confess our sins, but there's going to be a lot of freedom in who gets to um, participate and how we make it easy for them to participate. So I do think it can be done. I, I think that your acknowledgement of the different approaches we bring to worship is really important, I, but I don't think it can't work. Chrisanne, what do you think about that? Um, what you're describing and what Jane described at Highland Park is very much how we at Doylestown have restructured our Sunday school time. And uh, yeah, there's like a guide sheet. There's a scripture passage, a guide sheet with questions. And um we actually don't have leaders or teachers. They're called facilitators. So you just help to facilitate the process, which is then shared leadership and multi-voiced. And that, I mean, that's like what you were just describing, Jen. And, and yeah, so instead of leader, we settled on facilitator. And I wonder mm -hmm. if in pastoral leadership, if we could begin to view our role as facilitating the body of Christ. So then the big toe can be the big toe. The eye can be the eye. The ear can be the ear. The, um, I was going to say intestines. <laughs> I don't know what role that would be, but it's very important though. It's yes. very important. Highly you important. are, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, to see ourselves as facilitating the body of Christ instead of leading it or directing it or yeah. Yeah. More, more, more nurturing and facilitating, which again, that. feels a bit more female traditionally. Right. Yeah. I, I feel like we keep coming back to that. Yeah. I mean, let's name that. Let's name that. These are many of the structures that we have were created by the people in power at a certain time and revisiting the may me learning some new skills, which is a great pivot to our, our third point or our third question which is how our institutions and how our approaches to ministry training need to change. If we can name some of the 
um, results or some of the changes that we want to see in the way that we are, are doing church, both in our weekend gatherings and as we scatter, um, what do we need to do to equip leaders at every level? Vocational leaders, paid, vocational leaders, non-paid, um, the people that we are trying to equip to lead out of their giftedness as a big toe, how do we need to approach ministry training in a new way? The other thing I would just say to kind of um, put a bow on our discussion so far is that just kind of like bringing my education background, I think one of the things we all know is that you learn by doing. And so again, I think as we think about what it looks like to build more discipleship and spiritual formation into our if that's a value, we want to say, yes, this is one of the things that we want to see more of and that we value and that we want to work toward. The types of things that we're talking about are going to lead to that more than people sitting passively in seats. And again, we, we all realize that when we say it out loud, it sounds so obvious, but we've created these structures where it's more listening as opposed to participating. And yet the way that we learn, not just how to lead, but actually learn about scripture, how to, I guarantee you that the, the young adults, the teenagers, who are learning how to lead the study at Jane's Church, they are much more, they are getting much more from that Bible passage than if they sat and listened to somebody preach about it. And that's not a comment on the quality of the preacher or the sermon. It's just how our brains work. It's how we're wired as human beings. So mm -hmm. that's, that's, I think, another thing. If we're going to talk about what we want to see, what we want to move toward and how we want to get there. Jane, kick us off. What do you think? I think we have to begin with uh, changing our language, which then change how, changes how we think and act. So I like the phrase co-laboring culture, that we create this idea that we are co-laborers, actually borrowing that a little bit from Vatican II, that 20th century, huge, gigantic event in the church world, really uh, insisted upon a shift, and it's all relative, we're free church people, uh, but it but even the Catholic Church began a movement away from the clericalism uh, that really has had the church in its grip for hundreds of years. So this idea of co-laboring together that uh, it is not just the, the pastor, the paid person that has the tasks or the authority that make the, the church hum, uh, whether it's every Sunday, every service or all the events during the week. So this idea of changing the culture, which then changes how we have to think about how we're doing ministry. I'm sorry, how we're doing training for ministry, that we are co-laborers, that we are interdependent. We're really dismantling the whole clerical idea that you are the senior pastor. You're the only one doing the, the sermonizing. Um, so yeah, and I think it's value-based training. So again, we're, we're not making the assumption that we are creating, that ministry training is senior pastors and, and preachers. So we are scanning the horizon for where are those gifts, the, the, the gifts in people that we want to call out and that uh, we create this culture of laboring in the fields together here. To get very nuts and bolts. Um... So my husband's undergrad degree is in business and he took an organizational, it's called organizational leadership or organizational behavior. It, and then those, it might've been those two classes, but what he shared with me about what he learned there 
um, I was like, why, why isn't this required for people going into ministry? Um, because the principles he was learning was about human behavior. And when you get humans together, how they organize, disorganized, um, how you can leverage conflict, how you can um, bring out the best in an organization, the strengths and we identifying the strengths and weaknesses, all of that stuff. And I was like, dude, that's what we need in the church. We need to learn about organizational behavior and organizational leadership. I just also want to note, however, where did, where did John get his degree? Eastern Mennonite university. <laughs> Imagine that learning how to do business from a, in a Baptist perspective. I'm just that episode. <laughs> Everybody should be Mennonite. <laughs> sign up, sign up, sign up. Now I'm sure on a future episode we can talk about the unhealth of Mennonite. Yes. <laughs> right. History and culture. I think this topic is really interesting for me uh, because I'm currently in seminary right now. Uh, for those who don't know, that's how I got connected with Jane in the first place, not just as a my podcast friend, but as my professor. Uh, and so something that I, maybe this is just me, uh, but one, I think the seminary that I go to lends itself to not be about you. Uh, oftentimes the way classes end or the way courses are structured, it's really not about me. It's really about, okay, what have you learned? How does this enable your community to move towards the kingdom? Or how are you looking at your community to bring the kingdom closer? or to challenge people. And I really appreciate that perspective because it's not just a note thrown in to cap off the end of class, but from beginning to end, that's where you know you're headed. And I really appreciate mm -hmm. that. That resonates with me really deeply just as a person. Um, but I also think about how, um, you know, I was very begrudgingly doing some homework uh, this week, but I was thinking about how, um, how one education, formal education, like seminary is a great privilege. Uh, and I don't ever want to take that for granted. One, it's a privilege because I'm afforded the time, the opportunity to do it by my church, by my husband, um, also financially um, able to do that. And so to me, I think, or I would hope that if we are going to, or if churches are going to support their staff, I would say staff, not pastors, staff, or just whoever's church wants to go to seminary, um, I really think of it as an investment, not because someone paid for it, but just because I think there's a gift of education and that it's not for me to feel good about myself. It's not so that when I walk into a room, I have something to prove, but I think it's an investment. It should be fun and it should be exciting. Um, I like love talking about what I'm learning in school. I love just bringing forth these ideas. Just like right now, I'm taking a class in pastoral counseling and we're reading this book called Strategic Pastoral Counseling. And I didn't realize there was a strategy to it. But one of the interesting points that the book made was how, yeah, I think that's important to have people in your churches and your staff to provide one-on-one -on -one counseling more than ever. That's really important. But there's actually mm -hmm. another layer to counseling. And the book offers that the other layer to counseling is actually like deeply rooted Christian friendship. And I thought that was a really interesting idea that a lot of our needs that could be met in one-to-one -one counseling could actually be met to a degree by having great friendships. And are we encouraging communities to have those kinds of friendships that go deep? Uh, we love 
tossing around that iron sharpening iron, but like, are we willing to speak to each other in truth and in love? Uh, and is that received well? Do we have a culture for that in our communities, in our churches? Uh, and so for me, as I think about training, um, I, I, I think I'm having a good time in seminary. So I, I don't know if everyone's like dismantled the institution and, you know, or whatever well, that may be. But I think that as, as seminary remains a part of training for many yeah, people yeah. in full-time ministry, I'm like, how do we see it as an investment, not just for ourselves, but for our communities too? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good. I love that point that you're making because I agree with you. Like, this isn't about saying, just like my earlier point was not saying we just want chaos. This isn't about saying we don't want higher ed. Goodness, I would lose my job. Um, <laughs> and it's not, it's not about saying there's not a high value for it. But I think you make a great point that not everybody is going to have the opportunity or maybe wired to get out of that investment what you're getting out of it. One of the things that we're seeing a lot of is churches are instead of sending their people, instead of going to their local Bible college or seminary and recruiting from among graduates, they're finding people within their own congregations who, are, who show leadership ability and capacity and who are already serving and they're bringing them up and, and mm. giving them greater levels of responsibility, whether that's at a paid staff level or a vocational lay leader. And so we're seeing more churches much more interested in how do I get um, Tom up to speed and give him the biblical grounding that he needs so to supplement the way he's already serving and leading in our community, which I think is a really important question because we don't want people who don't have a biblical foundation or, or the ability to think theologically or to understand the Bible. We don't want, we don't want to just have a lot of people who are like nice people in leadership. So I think that's an important question to ask, but I think it also has ramifications for this question of how do our institutions need to change? Um, Can our institutions, in addition to the seminary training that you're talking about, can we provide shorter term opportunities um, for credit or just for enrichment where people can go and can get overview of the Old Testament, overview of the New Testament, overview of systematic theology, best principles and pastoral counseling, conflict negotiation and organizational leadership. Like, can we can design a curriculum that isn't going to take three to five years and $50,000, but is still going to equip people to do the work that to circle all the way back to the beginning that they feel called to do or that the community is seeing a giftedness for? Is there a way we can do that? Jane, do you have thoughts on that as an educator and a professor? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what I really want to talk about is the uh, institution. But (laughs) uh, yeah, so my thought on that, Jen, in terms of what you were speaking about, there are programs that are, they're rising up. So they're online programs. Uh, I think it's it's called Open Seminary. Um. And um, here's my, here's the, the tension I'm feeling because I want to talk about the institution is about the credibility of, of those places. And so I, what I want to do is I, I need, I feel like I need to vet them. What is your theology? What are you mm-hmm. teaching? Because, you know, I say this nicely, we don't want to create more monsters in ministry. That's right. not a nice way to say it. Kim, give me better language. <laughs> we don't want to create, um, no, I think you said what you meant. Okay. <laughs> well, maybe it's about existing institutions of quality 
creating additional programs. That's more of what I was advocating. Um, Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. And our existing seminaries and and higher ed institutions create an alternative pathway. Yeah. It's still valuable. And I'm not even suggesting that it be free because I think we value what we pay for. Mm -hmm. And I think there's money in most congregations to pay for this. I'm just saying, can we have different on-ramps to ministry beyond the traditional ones that are maybe not reachable or desirable by everybody? Yeah. So I see where you're going now that, and that makes sense. So you, so you're not necessarily, you're not necessarily looking for people to commit to a, a degree program, like you said, for the next three, four or five years. That makes sense to me. The other thing I was thinking, particularly as an educator at the seminary level is how I teach. I, I, I hope I do. I, I tend to think in terms of um, a collaborative approach, a multi-voice. So you know, even if I'm in a Zoom room teaching, I only want to be the person that asks the questions. You know, my ideal situation is I ask one question, you know, I throw the bomb out on the table and let students like, you know, toss it back and forth and wrestle through it. That's my delight. That is my delight. Mm -hmm. And so I'm thinking, uh, just as you pose that question, I'm thinking and making sure that I'm always modeling this co-laboring that I am not the person with the answers. I am just, I just make sure, I just put some guardrails in place so that we don't go, uh, not necessarily down a rabbit trail, but I need to make sure our theology is uh, on point. Uh, but, you know, give space for that conversation for students to really think through on their own, what is their position? So one in, in modeling that and, and those values. And I think that there is a shift Jen, maybe you can even speak into this because I'm really taking my cues from my son who, who um, graduated with an education degree where his mode is also um, this idea of a collaborative teaching, student-based, student-centered uh, teaching model. I, th- I think there's a shift happening that ne- not necessarily has trickled down to uh, our models of ministry where you have that senior pastor, you have that soul pastor clerical sort of structure uh that's not necessarily not necessarily sharing co-laboring together with uh those in his in his faith community that's a really insightful point i mean there are things we're learning in education about how best to educate humans that we're not using to inform the way we educate them about the bible and about faith um, and, and as Chrisanne noted, there are insights and ideas and theories in the business world that are very on point for human behavior. And we are not always using those to inform the way that we um, lead and communicate with each other and, and do the community life together. And I would say the same is probably, well, it's definitely true for the fields of social and behavioral sciences, um, things that we're learning in the world of psychology um, that and, and it's not about watering down. It's about making us more effective. Because to your point, Jane, if we're, if we're learning that it's maybe not always the best model to have a teacher in front of a classroom lecturing, although I would argue sometimes if you have a really, I have sat in some classes where I was mm-hmm. transfixed because the person was such a good teacher. So it's not throwing everything out and saying nothing can yes. ever be effective. Just like I've, I have listened to some sermons which have changed my life. But yes. we're saying that's not the only model or maybe even that's the exception, not the rule. 
Because what we know about human behavior and about educating people is again, we learn by doing, we learn by talking, we learn by experiencing, we learn by, uh, by participating. And so mm-hmm. any experience that is gonna leave out some of that is necessarily going to leave some of the learning on the table. And you know, there's different things we're trying, this comes back to what are we trying to achieve? Um, if we were just trying to get people um, to learn about, to learn Bible facts, that would, be yeah. one thing. That, we're trying to do more than that, but we can't not do that. I mean, that's kind of like, that's the, the price of admission, so to speak. That's, you know, I mean, we're trying to give people a biblical grounding and to apply it. Mm-hmm. And so the question I think I'm hearing us talking about is what structures will best help us to, to not just um, help people understand scripture, but then what are they going to do with that? And maybe that's where we need to rethink some of our structures mm-hmm. because we haven't been. And, you know, here's where I get tarred and feathered. I don't think the small groups movement has been very successful at that. I, do, I think mm-hmm. like anything else, there's exceptions to the rule. I've been part of one small group that was life-changing. Um, I've been part of like 12 small groups. So do the math, mm-hmm. right? Um, so anything can be effective, but, but are we learning from what's effective in other areas or are we just continuing what we know how to do? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in the evangelical tradition, we haven't, we haven't historically been open to, um, some of those other social sciences, uh, you know, disciplines that really could improve and deepen our understanding of just human behavior. Uh, we, we've been, you know, if it's not in the Bible, then it has nothing to teach us. And that's an unfortunate perspective that, you know what? I mean, modernity is, has brought us along, but I think, I think too, there. we've lost the point of the Christian life. Isn't to learn the right facts about God and Jesus and mm-hmm. myself in the world. The point of the Christian life is to become like Jesus. And I, th- I think too, that's gotten lost somewhere and mm it's, it's sad and, and it's showing, it's showing in our lack of discipleship. Hey, thanks for being a part of our listening community at Shaklesiology. We would love to hear your ideas for future podcast topics. What do you think are the pressing issues facing the church today that women need to be talking about? You can send your topics to ideas at girlstalkingchurch.com. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Come on.